All right, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, illumine our minds and hearts to understand your word. We ask that your Son, in his great work of propitiation for our sins, bearing your wrath on our behalf, Father, we ask that that would be made clear to us, that we would marvel at such love, Father, that you have shown us in giving your Son, that we would marvel at such grace that your Son has shown that He has purchased for us at the cross. And that we would, by the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit, be brought nearer to fellowship with you through trust in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's this phrase that sits right in the middle of verse 3. So I want you to look there at verse 3. He, speaking of the Son who's mentioned in verse 2, He has spoken to us by His Son. And then He goes on to give these descriptors. And one of them, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now notice this next phrase. It really is all one sentence. But in the English, we've sort of divided it up. But in Greek, it's one sentence. Notice the next descriptor. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I really want to camp out on this phrase, after making purification for sins. After, and we could translate it, making propitiation for sins, or or maybe after making atonement for sins. This phrase... Just these simple words here in the English, five words, bear a lifetime of meditation. They bear a lifetime of meditation. After making purification for sins. Why is that? Why is that such a stunning statement? In the face of everything else that's been said here, I want you to understand this is stunning. Awe-inspiring. It's one of those phrases you come to and you just want to become silent. Listen, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, throughout the Old Testament, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this eschaton, this age that we're now in, the age that the Son has come, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, if you will, the final word, the complete word, the one who says what the rest of them were pointing to. They were giving you types and shadows. He's now giving you the full picture. He is the substance that they were pointing to and promising. Here he is. He's spoken to us by his son. And who is his son? He's the one who's appointed heir of all things. And who is his son? He's the one through whom all things were created. It's a creator. And who is his son? He is the radiance of the glory of God. The actual outshining, if you will, the beams that come from the sun. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his hypostasis or hypostasis, his his nature, 
Exact imprint. It's the same nature as God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this son is, is the heir of all things. He would be. He's the son of the father. This son is the one who created all things. This son is the one who is the same nature as the father. He is himself God. This son is the one who upholds all things. He is upholding your life and breath even now. And he's not even just upholding it in this instant. He is carrying all things to their appointed end. This one. That son. And then you get this phrase. After making purifications for sin. Purification for sins. What? What? He? The creator and sustainer of everything? He, the one who is himself very God, the heir of all things, he made purification for sins? What? And I, I really want to look at three questions that are sort of begged here and answer them. One, who made atonement for sins? And, and I've already sort of gotten at that. In other words, who is this priest? Who brings forward the atoning sacrifice? Who is it? The Old Testament priests brought forward the atoning sacrifice. Who is this priest who brings forward the atoning sacrifice? Who made atonement for our sins? Second, what did he offer for atonement for our sins? In other words, what is the sacrifice this priest brought forward? In the Old Testament, you had priests, they brought sacrifices. What is the sacrifice this priest brought forward? And third, when did he atone for our sins? When did he atone for our sins? Is it something he repeatedly does? When did he do it? So the first question that comes up here, the question which seems most obvious to answer is, who made atonement for our sins? Who is this priest? Look at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And now we get these descriptors. He is, the son is the revelation of God, the prophet. He is the prophet. And then he is also the redemption of God, or the Redeemer, the priest. He made atonement for our sins. Now listen, he made atonement for our sins. I emphasize this because we must understand that we read this, we should not just fly past the word he and say something like, he made atonement for our sins. But he, the Son of God, the final word by whom God has spoken, the one who is appointed heir of all things. The one through whom God created the world. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He, he made purification for sins. I come after this because among the seven descriptors of the Son, this one stands apart from all others in a unique way. And this descriptor of the Son as the one who made atonement for our sins, will comprise most of the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. Most of this letter will be about this phrase, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Most of our letter, the rest of this letter, will be really coming after that statement. But why do I say it stands out from the others? I, I hope you've already noticed just in what I've said why it stands out. He is appointed heir of all things. Well, of course, he's the son of God. Of course, he would be the heir. Who's the heir in a family? The son. Not largely surprising. He is the one through whom the father created all things. Okay. He's God. Thus, he's the creator. Major claim, but goes with being the heir, doesn't it? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, we get an emphasis here on the fact that he is one with the Father. Well, if he's God and he's the creator, it makes sense he's the heir of all things. This all seems to hang together. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, if he's God and he's created all things and he's the heir of all things, then of course he's the one who's upholding all things and carrying all things to their appointed end. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Again, He's sovereign, right hand of majesty on high, because he's the king and he's ruling. All right, makes sense. He has a name greater than the angels. 
Of course he does. He's God. But in that context, among those affirmations, among those seven affirmations, you have this. After making purification for sins. Or atonement for sins. What? How can that be? The Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Heir of all things, He made atonement for sins? You guys might be familiar with Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? When it's sung, we hear this phrase, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's a great question. How can it be? How can God die for anyone, let alone for me? How can God, how can he make atonement for sins? Atonement for sins. In other words, pay the penalty that justice is due for sins. How can God do that? Are we really arguing that God satisfied God? That God bore God's wrath for our sin in our place? It really is unthinkable. It's horrifying. It's horrifying that our God who is holy, 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 the God who is sinless and undefiled would bear the curse for us. Be sin on our behalf. How can the one who has life in himself, John 5, 26, how can the one who has life in himself, the immortal God, die? This is the mystery of Christ. Even more than how he can die, how can he become sin for me? This is the mystery of Christ and his work on our behalf. The eternal son took on humanity and died for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your hand there. Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verse 14. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus, the Son, partook of the flesh and blood that we share. Listen, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps. He didn't come to save angels. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, listen to therefore, therefore, because he's helping us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now notice this, to make propitiation. That means satisfy the wrath of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is the Son of God who took a human nature to himself. He was humbled by addition. He added humanity to himself, and that was humility on his part. He is the God who took human nature to himself. God and man were, to use a very technical term, hypostatically united in the person of Jesus Christ. God and man, two natures, God, man, united in the person of Jesus Christ. One person. Now, yes, his death, the death of that person, Jesus Christ, was according to his human nature. His death was according to his human nature. When he died on the cross, he died a human death. When he shed his blood... He shed human blood. But what is true of either nature is true for the person. 
You hear that? Two natures united in one person. What's true for either nature is true for the person. Okay? Thus, Paul can say in Acts 20, 28, that God bought the church with his own blood. Now, we know God doesn't have blood. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. He doesn't have blood to shed. But we can ascribe this to God because Jesus is God and man. God doesn't have blood, but Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, did have blood, and what he did as a man, he did as one person. Our confession sums this up well. Listen, listen to how um, this is in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 8, paragraph 7. It's a different paragraph in those various documents, but listen, listen to what they said. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures. By each nature, doing that which is proper to itself. In other words, he died according to his humanity. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So God bought with the church with his blood. He spilled human blood. He's a God-man. But it's sometimes attributed to God that he shed his blood because he's one person. You might ask, is it enough? Is it sufficient that he died according to his, his humanity to atone for all our sins? Well, please understand, he died. He died. Yes, he died according to his human nature, but he is one person. And the person of Jesus, the God-man, died. Jesus' death according to his human nature had infinite worth. And value. You say, well, how does the death of a human have infinite worth and value? Because that human was united in one person to God. John Owen explains well why Christ's mediatorial mediatorial work is so powerful. Listen to what he says. In all the acts of his office, by the divine nature... He communicated worth and dignity unto what was acted in and by the human nature. His divine nature communicates worth and dignity to what his human nature is doing in the sense of making that propitiation eternal, infinite. And I stress this focus on the Son atoning for our sin to stress that it is perhaps here where we see most powerfully the glory of God and his love and grace and mercy and justice. John Brown said it this way, the omnipotence, the infinite wisdom, the immaculate holiness, the inflexible righteousness, the inconceivable kindness of the divinity, never shone forth with greater radiance in him who is the brightness of the divine glory, the express image of God, than when he thus by himself made expiation for the sins of his people. It is at the incarnation of the Son of God that the angels declare what? Glory to God in the highest. And it is the gospel work of the God-man, the Son of Mary, that is so infinite in wisdom and power, so all-glorious in grace and mercy, that Peter tells us how the angels long to look into these things. They marvel at this. That God would take to himself humanity, would humble himself in such a way, would walk among us, would sacrifice himself for us so that we might be forgiven our sins. They marvel at this, and so should we. We should come to a text like this and and sort of fall silent with awe. He, the Son, made purification for our sins. 
We should hear that the Son of God made atonement for us and be overcome with delight in God's love to us. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit planned this before the foundation of the world. Before you had even sinned yet once, they planned to save you. See, Jesus didn't come to purchase God's love for you. Jesus came because God loves you. He's not buying the Father off. The Father loves you, therefore he sent the Son. To bring purification for your sins. We ought to be stunned by the mystery of it all. Humbled by such grace to sinners. It leads directly to our second question. What did the Son offer for our sins? In other words, what was the sacrifice this priest brought? Now, I think it's probably become clear already, but in case it isn't, I want to make it clear. During the Mosaic Covenant, that is what we call the Old Covenant, what in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 will be referred to as the First Covenant, they don't mean the first covenant that you find in the Bible. It's clearly not the first covenant you find in the Bible. They're referring to the first covenant under which you see um, the covenant promises made to Abraham being administered. During that first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, a priest would bring a sacrifice. He'd bring one. Israel's priests, if you remember from... Um, the tribe of Levi, the little bit, little Levitical priests, the sons of Aaron, they would offer bulls and goats for the atonement for our sins. They were commanded by God to bring these bulls and goats once a year on the Day of Atonement. So keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and look at Leviticus 16. If you aren't familiar with your Bibles, you go to the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. To get to Numbers or Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. Leviticus 16. And look at verse 1. It starts, interestingly, the description of this day of atonement, in which they bring the blood of bulls and goats for the purification of the people, starts, interestingly, which says this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Now notice this phrase. When did he speak to Moses? After the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died. That's an interesting way to start off your description of the Day of Atonement. It happened after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So I want you to see that scene go to Leviticus 10. Just keep your hand in Leviticus 16 as well and go to Leviticus 10. The sons of Aaron would have been priests according to the Aaronic priesthood. And look what it says. Now Nadab, verse 1, Leviticus 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire, some translations have, unauthorized fire, fire that has not been commanded by God, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now notice, it doesn't say, against his commandment to them. It doesn't say they violated any commands. They have not taken one of God's commands with regard to offerings and violated it. Please hear that. They have not done that. What they have done is they have added to what God commanded. They've, they're bringing an offering God did not command them to bring. They're bringing unauthorized fire, something God didn't command to be brought to worship in the tabernacle where God's holy presence dwelt, they're bringing that, something he did not ask for, something he did not command. Look what it says. How does the Lord respond to this? Nice try. Was kind of good. Nope. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. For bringing something in worship, the Lord had not asked for. For bringing something in worship, that they concocted themselves. Something God had not commanded to be brought before him. They, if you will, participated in dead works of the flesh. And tried to bring that before God in worship. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, their father, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, set apart as holy. Don't bring your dirty rags before me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace, kept his mouth shut. Now, Leviticus 16 is narratively in the story of Leviticus answering the problem of sin and uncleanness that we see in Leviticus 10. These two priests just died in the tabernacle. And if you know anything about dead bodies, they're not to be in the holy presence of God. Why is death not to be in God's holy presence? Because death is unclean. Why is it unclean? Because it shows the effects of sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death demonstrates the effects of sin. It's unclean. These priests represent Israel, and now their dead bodies are in the tabernacle, and they've defiled the tabernacle with their uncleanness. And God will be sanctified. He will be set apart as holy. He will be undefiled, untouched by sin. Listen, as an aside, that's why when you read through Leviticus and you run into things like leprosy, or withered hands, or various physical deformities, and you hear them declared as unclean, and you're not allowed to come into the tabernacle if you have that. You want, why is that? It's not that God's cruel. It's that these are all pictures showing up in the human body of the destructive effects of sin and death. And the destructive effects of sin and death are not going to be brought into God's holy presence. That's also why it's so powerfully moving that the Son of God comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And tabernacles, John 1.14, dwells among us. And why it's so powerful when he touches the lepers and the women with emissions of blood as he willingly takes their uncleanness on himself. Because he's going to atone for it and make them clean. I'm getting ahead of myself. Leviticus 10 and 16 are picking up the same problem that we see in Exodus 40. And if you don't read Exodus 40, you don't understand the book of Leviticus very well. So just keep your hand there and look back at Exodus 40. Exodus chapter 40. They've constructed the tabernacle according to the Lord's command. And then we read this in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. Where they're to meet with the Lord. Where God's holy presence dwells. The cloud, that's the glorious presence of the Lord, covered the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So good news, Israel. We've come out of Egypt. We've been given this covenant in which we're his people, and now we have constructed this tabernacle where the Lord will meet with us, and now God's glorious presence has filled the tabernacle. Now we as a people are on the outside of the tabernacle. God's presence is there in the tabernacle gloriously, and we want to go in there to dwell with him. Now notice this note, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I don't know if you recognize it, but in the book of Exodus, this is a crisis point for Israel. God's glorious presence dwells there in the tabernacle. We can't go in. And our mediator, Moses, he can't go in either. What do we do? And then you come to the book of Exodus, and the Lord says, here's how you enter. You enter by the sacrifices that I command, with the stuff that I provide. And he drives you in one picture of uncleanness and sacrifice offered for it to another, to this ultimate day of atonement in Leviticus 16. And what you don't generally recognize, we don't spend time on enough time to get into it today, but the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, 
or a chiastic structure that drive you with the center. Chiastic structures, they, they drive you and they center in a place. And they drive you to the center, and the center of that chiastic structure is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. The whole of that story driving you at this day, the Day of Atonement. So look there in verse 1 of 16 again. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. See, we have a problem. Moses can't enter the tabernacle, and neither can his, his priests have now defiled the tabernacle with their dead bodies. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. See, there's two areas there, if you will, the holy place and the holy of holies. There's a huge curtain that keeps you from the holy of holies. And he says, tell Aaron, don't come into the holy of holies. That's where the Ten Commandments are in the ark with the cherubim that are over it. Don't come there because I dwell there and he'll die. Now look, verse 3. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Here's how he comes in. He has to make an offering for his sin and for the sins of the people. A sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for his sin as a sinful priest and for the sins of the people, and then he can come in. Now look what he does. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Now, I, I want you to understand this. You know what the high priest wore at that time? This royal robe. Purple, beautiful robe. Stitched, you can read about it in Exodus. That showed off, if you will, a kind of royalty and exalted nature. He's supposed to take that off. That exalted royal robe. And he's supposed to clothe himself in linens like a servant. And make atonement for his sins, his sins, and for the sins of the people. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord. And the other lot for Azazel. Azazel is the scapegoat. Now, now here's the thing. Here's, here's what this looks like on the Day of Atonement, just so you understand this picture. The high priest would take off one day a year, take off his royal robes, bathe, put on the clothes of a servant, make an offering for his own sin first, atonement for his own sin first. Then he would take these two goats and he would walk through the town to the tabernacle. And the people would follow him. And he would lead them to the tabernacle to the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And at the entrance, he would pray. He would slaughter one goat and take the blood into the holy place and put the blood on the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments where the law of the Lord was, atoning for their sin satiating the wrath of God against their sins. And then he would also, during this ceremony, pray over the other goat and transfer the sins of Israel to the people of the other goat as well. And then they would have a servant take that goat, called Azazel, the, the goat that you would, you would call the, the scapegoat. And he would take that goat, and he would walk that goat out of town. And the people would stand and watch the goat upon whom their sins is. They would stand and watch that goat until he disappeared from their sight. And their sins would be removed from them as far as the east is from the west. Because their sins had been atoned for, propitiated, and expiated, and they'd been washed clean. Now, if Moses can't enter this place, if these priests, the sons of Aaron, are, a are not able to bring anything of their own devices that's not offensive to the Lord then what can be done that the Lord may dwell with his people and his people with him, and he gives them the day of atonement. We cannot draw near to him as we are sinners, we are unclean, we are defiled, and we cannot bring anything before him 
of any kind of offering of worship that we deem acceptable because he is holy, holy, holy. He deems how he will be worshipped. He determines what he accepts for worship, for our atonement for sins. Thus he, hear that, he must provide the acceptable sacrifice. And Leviticus 16 shows us this. But Israel went through this process year after year as a constant annual reminder that the Levitical priest is not holy. His own sins must be atoned for. And that the people are not holy. They have to go through this year after year after year through their entire history. And in the face of this reality, we read this declaration in Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins. Now what does our text say that the Son offered to atone for our sins? The Greek there, after making purification for sins, is in the middle voice. Why does that matter? Because it means that that participle is reflexive. Now what do I mean by that? Thus the best way to translate it might be, after he himself made purification for our sins. He himself made purification for our sins. He offered himself. The priests of the Old Testament, they offered the blood of bulls and goats. He, as the priest, offered himself. He offered himself. Now look at Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, that means the Mosaic covenant, that one that he gave them, and you see specifically inaugurated in Exodus 24. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Just read about the the tabernacle. Regulations for worship. We read some of those. Now, drop down to verse 6. These preparations... Having thus been made, they're talking about all the preparations for the Day of Atonement. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, the Holy of Holies. Into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, uh, which is symbolic for the present age. I'll deal with that later, but listen to this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. This is talking about the old covenant arrangement. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hear that? The gifts and sacrifices, Leviticus 6, 16, sorry, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Cannot. Now look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, no longer the good things that are to come, but the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, He entered, now check this out, he enters the Holy of Holies, that second place, listen, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing not an annual redemption, but an eternal redemption For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, we could do nothing to atone for our sins. We had nothing to offer the Lord. The Lord Jesus offered himself for us, and thus secured an eternal redemption. He purified our conscience so that we can turn from dead works 
and serve the living God. Friends, this is the exclusivity of the gospel. This is why you must necessarily come to the Father through the Son. Thus he, the Son of God, offered himself that he, the Son of God, may atone for our sins and so that we may dwell with him and he with us. We can offer nothing to God but dead works and strange fire. God is not, I I want you to hear this. God is not in heaven looking down at our weak, useless, and dead attempts at worship and asking, what have you got for me today? What do you got for me this Sunday? I need something good. He's not walking away from our services of worship and scoring the service and declaring, wow, that, that worship was particularly good today. I think they created the right environment for my spirit to really get moving. Now I can really work. So what is happening in the worship service where Christ is preached and the sacraments are held up before you? What is being offered there? What's happening? What's happening there is the Lord, please hear this, because this is the reason you gather. Because the Lord is giving himself to you. By his spirit. Hear that? What do you have going on that could possibly be better than gathering with Christ's people for the Lord to give himself to you by his spirit? I don't mean he's offering himself as an atonement once again. This isn't a mass. He's not re-offering himself over and over and over again. That was done once for all time. Once for all time. And that leads to my last question. When did the Son atone for our sins? When did he atone? And this one's going to come at you kind of quick. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, because we'll pick up on this again next week. Hebrews 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice that. The first thing I want you to notice is this Greek participle, after making, is in the aorist tense in Greek, which is a past tense. In English, we just say the past tense. In other words, he already did it. When did he make purifications? In the past. It's historically complete. The types and shadows of the first covenant under Moses have found their fulfillment in the second covenant under Christ. That whole mosaic system finds its telos, its, its goal, its completion, its end in Christ. In other words, Christ does not offer himself for sins over and over again. He doesn't offer himself for sins over and over again. Year after year, as with the Day of Atonement. The cross was the great final Day of Atonement. Further, I want you to notice the relationship between that that phrase, after making purification, and the main verb, which is in the next phrase, he sat down. After making atonement or purification, notice what he says, he sat down. After making atonement, he sat down. In other words, he rusted from his atoning work. He did so because it's finished. He did it once for all. Unlike the priests who stayed standing. Do you know that? The priests stayed standing as they brought forward the sacrifice. Why? Because they had to walk out and do it all over again next year. Instead of that, he sat down at the right hand. He took his place on the throne. He rested from his work of atonement for our sins. Now the author of Hebrews is going to come after this again and again. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. And verse 23. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. You need a lot of them, right? Because they kept dying. But he holds his priesthood permanently because. He, 
continues forever. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See that? The other priests died. They made an offering for you. They stayed standing. They walked out. They come in and did it again the next year. It didn't atone for all your sins forever. And they could not forever sit at the throne of majesty making intercession, praying to the Father that he would keep you. Interceding on your behalf. But Jesus is on the throne forever. He made purifications for sins. It's done. It's complete. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high where he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he ever lives to make intercession for them. You know the, the Son is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is at the right hand praying for you right now. You draw near to God through Christ. He's praying for you right now. That's why you don't need to come to me regularly and ask me to pray for you. I'm happy to pray for you. But you have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. And he saves you to the uttermost. I can't add to that. You can't add to that. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hear that? Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, the tabernacle or the temple are copies of the heavenly tabernacle or temple in, um, in heaven. That's kind of redundant, but you get my point. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You've got to let those words of good news wash over your minds and hearts. By a single offering for sin himself, he has perfected you for all time, having cleansed you of your sin, having propitiated the Father's wrath on your behalf. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high where he ever lives to make intercession for you so that you'll be saved to the uttermost. And he will return, not to deal with sins again, he's already dealt with sins. But he's returning again, what? To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what has Jesus said to sinners like you and me? What has he revealed to us in the gospel? What has he accomplished 
for us in the gospel. He made atonement for our sins once and for all. In our case, he made that atonement before we were even born. Yes, it's applied to you when you believe. But do you hear the significance of the fact that Jesus died for your sins, every single one of them, before there was yet one? John Owen sums this up well, really sums up well what Jesus says to sinners like you and me. I want you to hear what this Puritan said. The Lord Christ in the promise comes unto him. In other words, the Lord Christ comes to the sinner and says this. Jesus comes to you as a sinner and says this. Hear what he says. Poor creature, how woeful is thy condition. How deformed is thy appearance. What has become of the beauty of the glory of that image of God wherein thou was created? How hast thou taken on thee the monstrous shape and image of Satan? And yet, and yet thy present misery, thy entrance into dust and darkness is no way to be compared with what is to ensue. Eternal distress. Eternal distress lies at your door. But yet look up once more and behold me. That thou mayest have some glimpse of what is in the designs of infinite wisdom, love, and grace. Come forth from thy vain shelter, thy hiding place. I will put myself into thy condition. I will undergo and bear that burden of guilt and punishment which would sink thee eternally into the bottom of hell. I will pay that which I never took and be temporally made a curse for thee that thou mayest attain to eternal blessedness. Christian, this is our gospel He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, the atonement for our sins, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. May we rejoice in him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Son would be made clear to our eyes that as the gospel is placarded before us, as it's held up, explained and what your son has done for us in making purification for our sins and ascending to your right hand where he sat down finished with the work of atonement but continuing the work of making intercession for us that that atoning work might be applied to us and we might be made more like himself saved to the uttermost we pray that we would understand that and rejoice in it that you would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.